Contact port about four miles. It's October. We've touched down on Mount Elbert, a nearly 14 and a half thousand foot high mountain. A group of five search and rescue members are on the lookout. The beginning of a search scene can be somewhat chaotic. There's a lot of pieces that are going on. A hiker has been reported overdue on their itinerary. They've been missing for 24 hours. What search and rescue does know is all attempts to contact the hiker by calling them aren't working. There's a lot of urgency in the rescue world. Every minute is super important in getting that person into a secured position. The following morning at 3 a.m., a five-person rescue team returned. Still no sign of the missing hiker. Top, uh, litter top, not for but then a second team sets out before dawn. They start by looking at a spot where hikers typically lose the trail. You have a report or a belief that a party is missing somewhere, and that's where you're going to focus a lot of your search efforts. And a couple hours later, they discover... The hiker was found at their place of lodging. They're okay. They're safe. The hiker informed the team they'd lost their way at night and bounced around looking for the proper trailhead to take them home. They had no idea the search and rescue had called. Meanwhile, the team had spent more than 32 hours looking for them. When they asked the hiker why they didn't answer repeated calls on their phone, the hiker simply told them they had just assumed it was spam callers. Hey, I'm Shauna Ryan. And I'm Jason Adams. And you're listening to Mobile Diaries, a podcast brought to you by T-Mobile Stories. All right, Jason, we both enjoy a nice little stroll around the city block, but I wouldn't go so far as to call any of us true outdoorsy people, let's be honest, right? So I was a little surprised when you first told me about that story of the missing hiker who really wasn't missing. Yeah. So I remember I first read about it in The Guardian. And of course, I was fascinated about the buildup in the story and, you know, certainly thought it was headed in a very different direction. But the character in the story that I was most interested in after I got into it wasn't really the hiker at all or the search and rescue team, but the mobile phone and the role it played or in this case, didn't play. And it got me to thinking, was the technology an innovation or a disinnovation in this scenario? All because the way the the hiker was using it or not using it. It seems extreme. Yes. Well, perfect story because in this series, we've been talking about how our world has been tilting and shifting and adapting since the global pandemic turned everything upside down. Now, we've discussed our mental health, our love lives, our evolving remote work lives, all the different types of folks that have come out of this period. But I would like to go back and remember when everything was just first locking down. Seems like just yesterday, doesn't it? You know, we entered our homes, we shut our doors to this brand new quarantine reality. Yeah. And honestly, after months and months of that, the last thing I wanted to see was my uh, familiar dining room table here that has been Frankensteined into a scrappy home office and a, a podcast studio. Yeah. You and everybody else. And from that discontent, a new hobbyist emerged from its lair. Now, thanks to an accelerated technology evolution comes a new kind of outdoor adventurer, you know, one that's kind of traversing a quote unquote digital landscape, almost like Jason, you and I have called it like a wireless in the wild situation. So despite closure of national parks throughout the United States, those that stayed open 
actually broke records in the amount of people visiting them, according to the National Park Service, that is. In 2019, 327 million people visited our parks, 9 million more than the previous year, and the third highest number of visits since records began in 1904. I, for one, am glad that people are appreciating the wilderness, but I hate to say it, it, it can have its downsides. Larger crowds meant litter left behind, people tagging stones and trees with graffiti. Some park rangers went so far as to implement a timed entry system in order to keep down park capacity. And that brings to mind another somewhat controversial topic in the realm of outdoor recreation. There's this tension between smartphone users and nature purists. So today, we're asking, how does mobile technology hinder or enhance an outdoor experience. And I have to say, from the official side of things, a study from the journal Adventure Education and Outdoor Learning looked into the perception outdoor instructors have about smartphones in the wilderness. Over half of 151 surveyed outdoor instructors, all of them agreed that technology was useful for checking weather, using GPS tracking. But when it comes to texting, games, phone calls, most were not in favor of using it. You know, that's kind of an interesting point, though, because where we work and we know that these networks are becoming vast. And it's certainly since the beginning of the pandemic, just before that, T-Mobile started rolling out its 5G network. And kind of like the hiker at the top of the episode, that person was receiving self-service out in the wild. So I do kind of wonder if this will change or if even that number of people, you know, half people being in favor of it is already a lot higher than it used to be. Yeah, lots to talk about here. And in a few minutes, actually, we're going to interview Casey Schreiner from ModernHiker.com about the modern and highly connected outdoors. So stay tuned for that. But first, you know, as you and I said, Jason, not exactly wilderness guides. (laughs) All right. We called in an expert to discuss these issues as well with us and share a couple of outback tales of adventure. I'd like everyone to meet Jay Christensen. He's a public information officer for Colorado Search and Rescue, and he's also an active search and rescue member for El Paso County. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jay, where do you fall on that debate? Are you a nature purist or... Can you see where, you know, marrying the outdoors with your smartphone, you know, makes sense sometimes? I'm definitely a little bit of both. Being a search and rescue member, I actually have a search canine and we utilize GPS to figure out where we've been and how our detection in that area is if we're looking for someone. And while we're in the field, I have feedback for where he is because I can mirror my GPS through my phone to my watch. Super cool stuff really not mandatory, but very helpful to have. So there are some great tools that come in the cell phone world, but definitely there are some problems that come with the cell phone world in the wilderness as well. Can we ask what you thought about the story we just read at the top of the show? You know, the hiker who ignored search and rescue, assuming it was just a spam caller. What's your gut reaction to that story? Do you laugh? Are you like, yeah, I get that. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, that. That's a variation on a not wholly uncommon search problem. You have a report or a belief that a party is missing somewhere, and that's where you're going to focus a lot of your search efforts. And inevitably, there are searches where someone's home playing video games at the neighbor's house, and you didn't know, and you just spent 26 hours you know, looking around for them because they're overdue and they forgot to call mom. Um, things like this definitely do happen. And so the, the spam call is a nice, fun wrinkle to it, but it's definitely not an uncommon thing in the world of searching. So we shouldn't be so mean to this guy <laughs> that we haven't met. <laughs> yeah, no, correct. 
So Jay, before we talk a little more about the hiker and this kind of scenario and kind of investigate our relationship between like our mobile devices and the world of nature, I'd love to get to know a little bit more about you. You know, you're an active search and rescue member. And from what I understand, I'm told it's really a whole family affair for you. You're with El Paso County. Your wife is in search and rescue too. You also have your canine companion. You know, how did you end up in a pair of tack boots hopping out of helicopters in life? You know, it's kind of a circuitous path. I am in and from the wine industry originally. So I used to own and operate along with my wife, a winery and vineyard. And we got out of that area of the business and started a consulting business because we were working really hard in the winery and never really had free time. And we moved to the front range of Colorado. So Colorado Springs, which is El Paso County and sitting around with more free time than either of us knew what to do with. And my wife one day said, you should check out Search and Rescue. Okay. And uh, I went to a meeting and was kind of hooked. And so after that, I went through all the training to become a new member and a fielding member. And then from there, picked up the dog training and just kind of kept down that path. And then it wasn't until uh, just this last year that my wife was like, you know, it's really sounds like a lot of fun. And I like working with the dog when we're fooling around. So maybe I should do it. So she jumped in and she just graduated a few months back. And uh, now she's fielding with me on dog missions like last night, in fact. Just last night? Yeah, just last night. Got home at about 1045 last night. So this is literally like your movie night. You're like, this is what we do. You know, couples night out, just saving the world, saving people. (laughs) Yeah. And significantly (laughs) less predictable. Wasn't really planning it, sitting in a board meeting and like, oh, I guess I need to go now. Sorry. What was the first day like for you after your wife was like, you know what, you should go for it. Or the first mission that you ever actually were called on when someone perhaps, let's say, was lost. Yeah. The first mission that I actually went on was a rescue of relatively significant complication. A vehicle had ended up down in the bottom of a road. There were no drivers available. So I ended up being the code driver, which is utterly terrifying. And we were driving up through a park. Then we arrive on scene and there's a fire vehicle there and state patrol vehicle there. And you look down into the bottom of the canyon and there's a speck of a vehicle 800 feet below us. And it was about a 750 foot descent on ropes to go get them. So we're tying ropes together and feeding them down the hill. It's cold. I think it was late fall. Going all the way down these 700 feet on the rope and then packaging up this gentleman that was having a pretty tough go, pulling him back up the hill, all the way back up through a system, and then getting him loaded into a helicopter and stabilized and flown to the hospital. It was very surreal. You know, you're hanging on a rope on the side of a hill and wow. This is not consulting about direct-to-consumer experience in the wine industry. (laughs) You know, I am not sitting on a Zoom call right now. This is very different. Have missions increased during the pandemic for you? Have you received more calls, but have there been more of the, you know, people, uh, people who are novices trying to get out there? Yeah, Colorado on the whole is one of the most active search and rescue areas for sure. So in the first year of lockdown, the answer is yes. We had more calls and our, quote, conversion rate of calls to missions seemed to be pretty consistent. We receive about 300 of those calls for help a year. And of those 300, about half end up fielding team members in one way or another. I do know that many other regions across Colorado saw large increases in calls and missions. Can you sort of describe for us what the the sort of the stress level or the level of intensity and the range of that might be in the calls that you're receiving? So the, the most simplistic ones where it's mostly... 
Um, you get a call for someone who is lost on a trail. You can get in touch with them. They can actually send. We have a, an application that we've built on our end where I can send a text message and they can hit reply and it'll actually produce their location on a map for me. I can look at them and say, oh, you just need to turn left and walk 40 yards and you're on the trail. Mission done. I win. Um, the exact opposite of that can be true. We had a mission up high on Pikes Peak the other day. Someone had been missing for 48 hours and uh, the weather was rolling in and it was quite significantly winter. We orchestrated a very significant mission to go down from the top of the mountain and go find this guy. You know, 48 hours in the field when it's 15 degrees out and blowing snow definitely can be quite stressful. We talked off the top of the show about how the expansion of wireless networks have helped usher in these new mobile personas traversing the digital landscape. You know, people who are relying on their cell phones more and more for things like navigation in the outdoors. But, you know, people still get lost. It happens. And that's where a safety captain like yourself comes in. Can you take us through some of the different kinds of technology search and rescue is using to help keep people safe? Sure. A list of technology that we have available to us is pretty significant. Situationally dependent, we deploy a lot of behavioral analysis tools, which really are just statistical sets of data that have been collected over years, primarily in book format, but they're quite useful for figuring out what a lost person would likely do. I think there's 43 different categories of people, but whether you're a hiker or a biker or a child or an adult and that sort of stuff. And we can look at the statistical history of your class of person being lost in the wilderness and we can have ranges at which we are more likely to find you. And that has been very helpful to us. Application of that 10 years ago involved getting out a paper map and a compass and measuring the scale and drawing a circle on a paper map and then handing that out to a field team was significantly more challenging. We have some mapping tools now that are pretty incredible with our ability to produce a shared map that the entire team has access to. And we can put that data onto that map and then you can actually track your trail on that map using your mobile device in the field. And so the overhead team knows where you are and if you are close to something that they want to send you to. So that's all very helpful stuff. One of the cooler pieces of technology that's relatively new that we've been utilizing occasionally, and I literally mean occasionally, like on two or three occasions, but the ability for the cellular providers in the emergency network world to bring a mobile cell tower to a forward operating area to provide cellular coverage for our area can do a lot for us. And we've used that in a couple cases that has actually been quite helpful because then you have boots on the ground and then you have connected boots on the ground, which provides that mutual operational picture and that situational awareness, which is one of the better valuable areas of the cellular technology for us. Please leave your message after the tongue. You're listening to Mobile Diaries, a podcast brought to you by T-Mobile Stories. We're exploring the fascinating stories of how mobile technology has shaped our lives, especially in the last two and a half years, and how we can learn to use our devices without them using us. So follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows so that you can follow us on our mobile diary journey. You can also check out our website, mobilediariespodcast.com. If you're happy with your message, press one. I want to shift our story back now to our original question for this episode, where we're wondering how does technology hinder or enhance our experience outdoors? 
We've all heard how Jay uses it to literally save lives, but what about the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, whether you're a nature purist or a connected hiker, the fact that technology is available in these places is shaping our landscapes. Yeah, exactly. So that's why we shot a message over to Casey Schreiner. And I'm the founder of the website Modern Hiker, as well as a writer and outdoor author. So we asked him what changes he's seen in our woods and on our mountains following the pandemic and, you know, what advice he would give others. You know, I'm really curious, Casey, here, if you could give us a few examples of how our technology actually plays a role in this modern hiking experience. Yeah. Over the many, many years that I've been in this space, I started Modern Hiker in 2006, uh, which makes me basically an Internet dinosaur. I started before social media was around, before smartphones were, you know, commonly available in this space. I do remember like having to print out MapQuest directions to get to these places and like thumbing through them in the car, which that's the early version of distracted driving. Um, But we have seen just so, so many shifts uh, in the outdoors with technology. First of all, GPS is now basically ubiquitous. GPS devices were mostly used by like geocachers, And like really hardcore outdoors people, they cost several hundred dollars. They were really unpleasant to use. Now, like they're in your phone. It's in your pocket. You have a GPS everywhere. Photography was another thing that has changed a lot. Same thing. Cell phone in your pocket. Like most of my photos that I take for the website and even some of the books that I've done recently, I've used my iPhone to take those photos. Before I had a huge honking DSLR that I had to lug out into the wilderness. Huge pain in the butt. Uh, I hated it, but it took the best pictures at that time. Directions are another big thing. Just having something like Google Maps or Apple Maps giving you driving directions as well as directions on the trail in some parts. So how exactly can this increased use of tech impact natural spaces? So I think if you are going to use technology to get in the outdoors, first of all, that's awesome. Um, The cons of that are there's a lot more people flooding to certain areas these days. And that is a direct result of social media, especially in cities that are near outdoor spaces. When everything was closed in the city, the only thing to do was to go outside. So the way that social media algorithms work, what gets boosted on social media basically drives people to the same top 10 hikes in your state. Everyone is doing those hikes. The photos you're taking are not special, um, but people getting lost in the wilderness or in the backcountry is a really big thing now. And there are a couple places that are notorious, especially in the summer for like nonstop helicopter rescues. And most of the time it's like, oh, what happened? Oh, it's another person who tried to climb up the side of a waterfall wearing flip flops. Or it's someone who went on a 14 mile hike because there's a really cool picture at the end of it. And they took no water and no food. These are the things that happen because technology has made this stuff more accessible. Now, the the positive side of that is this information is more accessible. There, There should be more people out in the wilderness. I'm not like a gatekeeper. Where that divide happens sometimes is that A lot of the apps and a lot of the social media stuff has sort of made the outdoors transactional in a way that I think is really detrimental to both the outdoors as a concept and the experience of being in the outdoors. So I was in L.A. during the beginning of the pandemic, um, and unfortunately, the parks in L.A. were mostly closed. But once they reopened, crowds were up kind of across the board everywhere from the national forests and the national parkland that was nearby to even just city parks and neighborhood parks. What I hope comes out of the COVID-19 pandemic is that people recognize how important these spaces are. These parks and places that we love to go and visit, even the national parks, national forests, 
these things are underfunded for decades. There's like a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar backlog of essential repairs that the national parks have. That's kind of where I have a little bit of an issue with the sort of the increased crowds in, in a lot of these places. Could you actually suggest a few tips for our listeners here on how to be mobile mindful and, and avoid this kind of scenario? You know, for me, I do use the Internet to find trails that I want to visit. But for me, the Internet is a that's a doorway to the outdoors. If you are using technology in the outdoors, use it as a backup. You should have a guidebook with you or at least a printed out version of the trail guide. Batteries die. Phones get dropped in the water. For the experience of like being in the outdoors, there are a couple of things you can do, especially with social media. One is to kind of use conscientious tagging is what I call it. I almost never use geotagging on my Instagram. I will write an Instagram post that will have hundreds of words describing this beautiful place, why it's special, why it's cool, uh, link to an even more lengthy, detailed guide on the website in my bio. I'll post this picture without a doubt. The first five comments will be, where is this? Even if I've said where it is four or five times in the actual post, they see a nice photo. They just want to know how to get there. If you geotag a specific location, odds are that location is going to go up in popularity by quite a bit. The algorithm will keep sharing it. People will keep searching for it. It's probably going to end up on some clickbait blog top 10 list. So that means that more and more people are going to fewer and fewer trails, which means that those trails and those locations, A, get way overused. You're going to see overflowing trash cans. You're going to see uh, switchbacks cut on trails. You're going to see litter and garbage along the way. You're going to see trampled wildflowers. In addition to potentially just destroying the thing that was so pretty that you wanted to go and see it in the first place, the other thing is to kind of be mindful of what you're showing. You know, in Southern California, it's a boom and bust cycle for rain. Sometimes we have drought years like we're having now. Other times we have beautiful rain and we get these amazing super bloom wildflower shows. Every time that happens, all of the park agencies in Southern California have to beg people to please not go roll around in the flowers to take a photo for Instagram. Like if you wanna go take pictures of wildflowers, awesome. Go and enjoy them, go and see them. It does not take a lot of effort to just stay on the trails. So just kind of be mindful of what you're showing. If you're showing something that even looks like you're off the trail, save that for your private photos. Like make sure that what you're showing on the internet, on social media is responsible because like graffiti, People copy that stuff. If you take a photo lying down in a protected area, 10 other people are going to follow you and do the same thing. Jason, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are about what Casey just shared with us and how you even said to me, like, it just begs the question, where is the line between an innovative, right, technology and is there a disinnovative side to all of this as well? I mean, Casey's even suggesting at times, don't use your geotagging on your photos and over-publicizing, you know, these places that then get overcrowded. Or Yeah, not to extend the metaphor too much, but, you know, when you leave trash around and then grizzly bears wander into your campground, like, what is the, the version of of that by not geotagging? Like, what menace and apex predator to the environment is our lack of mobile mindfulness contributing to? Don't leave digital trash. <laughs> I love that. Mobile stewards, but literally meaning like stewards of thinking about how are you using your devices and is that really best for you, for your own personal safety and for everyone else around you? 
With that being said, as we've discussed some of the downsides and perils to being out in the wild while connected, let's come back to Jay Christensen on the advice he would give nature purists and connected hikers alike. In some regards, being prepared to go out in the wilderness is somewhat technologically independent, right? There, there should be 10 things you bring no matter what. And I guess technologically independent from the sense of mobile technology, not from the sense of technology. Great clothing, water, food, shelter, fire, a knife or a tool of some kind, first aid, sun protection, light source. Those are all relatively independent of a cell phone, though a light source, a cell phone is not a great one in the wilderness. I will throw that out there, though people have used it. Um, navigation is the 10th one of that 10 essentials list. And navigation on a phone is a particularly powerful tool as long as you have a stable backup. And that's more than just a backup battery. Um, we use it, like I said, we have a mapping tool that we use that's called Sartopo that's done by the company called Caltopo. It is a phenomenal tool for wilderness navigation. You can download the map so you have them available without cell service. The GPS receiver in your phone still knows where you are on that map. It has a, just an amazing set of tools. But if you drop and break your phone and that tool miraculously disappears on you, you have to have some form of backup. So we always counsel both the I want to go into the wilderness and avoid technology person and the I want to use my technology in the wilderness person to be competent with basic navigation with maps and compasses, primarily because they aren't as delicate. Just because this is something that everyone is familiar with, these three numbers, 911, how important is 911 in making 911 calls in these search and rescue situations. The sooner you activate emergency services, the more likely it is that we can get to you before things go poorly or more poorly than they already have. Um, the second thing that's really critical that a lot of people don't recognize is that many regions actually have the capacity to manage text message 911 activation. And a text message is significantly better at utilizing lower cellular service than a phone call. And so being able to text 911 can be a very powerful tool when you can't call 911. And then finally, and not cellular device driven, um, PLBs or uh, personal locator beacons or in-reach style devices uh, actually goes directly from your device to a satellite. And then that satellite beams it to the AFRCC, which is the Air Force Resource Coordination Center. And then they contact the jurisdiction who's involved, which in our argument here would be somewhere in Colorado. And then that search and rescue group using the information from that beacon, which is your GPS position, can field the team to your location. We talked about the different kinds of people. There are people who rely on their technology when they're out in the wild. Then there's the nature purists, those who are out to be disconnected in the first place. Even in our day-to-day, -day, we have things that help us create moments of mobile mindfulness for us, whether that's a do not disturb alert on your phone or monitoring your screen time. I was just wondering if you're out in nature and you want to make the most of it, or if you're out in nature and your mobile device can help you make the most of it, if you have any advice for what mobile mindfulness might look like in your world and having a healthy relationship with your phone while you're out in the wild. My phone is my pager. And so my phone, especially when I'm on duty, is you know glued to me because I'm the responsible party for the 911 calls, but actually in nature proper. 
There are some ways to integrate your phone to help you understand nature. And it's dependent on some tools that your phone can have. There's a fun app called Peak Finder, which actually uses the camera of your phone and the GPS sensor and the gimbals in your phone or the accelerometers, I suppose is more appropriate to determine what the names of the mountains around you that you're looking at are. And it gives you a visual readout with the names and the elevations. And I think that can help you be engaged in the environment somewhat realistically the best tool in the wilderness for helping you not use technology is the wilderness itself because it typically doesn't have the best cell phone service. So that's always a good trick too. I don't know if you've had this experience trying to capture these great moments of nature on a camera phone. Impossible. It's impossible. impossible. I'm sorry. Let's just all agree on this, please. You're, you're seeing this you know, <laughs> 10,000 foot peak in front of you and then you take a photo and it looks like you're in Kansas. Yeah, Jay, you can't tell me that you ever took a cell phone photo of some of the things that you're describing to us and we're like, that came out well, exactly as I remember. Yeah, no, definitely not. I, I distinctly remember the first time I got in a helicopter with my dog and uh, another dog who is roughly the same age as my dog and came up together with another trainer who was in my new member class. And the the four of us, there are two dogs and he and I are getting in this helicopter. We're like, this is so cool. We were told we were never going to fly in a helicopter and here we are getting in a helicopter to get flown in with our dogs. Take pictures of me and not one of them is usable. It's like a blurred corner of a dog and, you know, out of a window that you can tell that you maybe there's a football field. I don't know. It, they're just a mess. The good news is, Jay, that I'm sure that there's going to be a listener with a hack. There's always a hack that someone knows somewhere and we're going to learn it after this. So we'll make sure that you get word as well. Thank you so much for your time. We've learned so much. Maybe I'll even buy a pair of boots and attempt to get out there, out of the city streets. I don't know. As long as I know that you're around to help me if I need if I need a little help. Is that okay? Yeah, New York's a touch out of my jurisdiction, but otherwise we're good. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, from Jason and I, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. We really appreciate the opportunity to bring search and rescue to people's minds. Today, our guest was Jay Christensen, Public Information Officer for Colorado Search and Rescue, as well as a Search and Rescue member for El Paso County. Also, a special thanks to Casey Schreiner from Modern Hiker for some of his insights. You can check out his site at modernhiker.com. I'm Shauna Ryan. And I'm Jason Adams. You've been listening to Mobile Diaries, a show brought to you by T-Mobile Stories with production support from JAR Audio. Join us in our next episode. We're looking at the brave new world of traveling with our dependable travel companion, of course, our mobile devices. 